This episode of the Mapping the Zone podcast is sponsored by Armand Sandwiches. Have you ever found yourself desiring a fine dining experience, the likes of which can only be found in Paris, France? Do you crave Duc de l'Orange, paired with a delightful Beaujolais, or the perfect cup of coffee served with a French croissant, folded over a million, billion times, until it just falls to pieces in your mouth? Have you ever been playing whist and needed one hand to eat and the other hand free to allow you to continue to win like a champion? Let me introduce you to Armand's Sandwiches. Food so good, you won't be able to stop shouting. Yingle Yangle. Yingle Yangle. And as a special coupon for our listeners, any orders placed this month using the code MAPPING save 10%. Armand sandwiches. Sandwiches so good, you won't be able to stop shouting. Yingle yangle. Yingle yangle. Thank you for joining us in Mapping the Zone, a podcast dedicated to informal discussion of the works and context of Thomas Pynchon. My name is Cody. I'm one of the co-hosts. Hi, I'm Will. I'm Luke. Unfortunately, Kate could not join us uh, for this episode. Uh, she may jump on later. We're not entirely sure right now, but hopefully she'll be able to. If not, she'll be back uh, next week. Uh, we are following the reading schedule from the Penchon subreddit, and today we're discussing chapters 51 through 55 of Mason and Dixon. This episode has proven to be a little bit of a uh, an interesting, somewhat, we were just talking before we started recording, a little bit of a cursed episode in some senses. We've had some technical problems, and uh, our usual summary that uh, Will does was lost to the technological ether and so we are going to just kind of summarize off the top of our heads in a, in a sort of way, uh, rather than the, the scripted summary that we typically have. So um, bear with us as we go through this. But I think we all kind of agree this was a good set of chapters to kind of have this type of review on just because of the sort of dreamy and, and surreal nature of uh, especially the uh, two chapters, 53 and 54. So uh, we'll start at the beginning. Um, Will, do you want to kind of start as best you can with remembering sure. what, what we went through? Yeah, absolutely. So 51 starts off with uh, essentially a prank war between Asen and Dixon. Mm -hmm. Starting off with Dixon getting a coonskin, coonskin cap, um, you know, truly becoming an American at this moment in my mind. Um, and he just uh, decides to jump out from behind behind doors and stand in corners with the tail dangling over his face, spooking the hell out of Mason. And Mason responds by uh, waking him up in in a manner that to me seems pretty pretty low key, but apparently freaks Dixon out quite a bit by ringing a bell over his face. Yeah, I thought that was just the most like juvenile thing that he probably was the only one who found it funny 
Yeah, it's strange because uh what what is the joke here? You fell asleep? It, it seems like in the, you know, in the ensuing conversation both of them had fallen asleep or, you know, were likely to. Mhm. So I'm not, not quite sure what the joke actually is. But anywho, then we continue onward and they hear this weird this weird noise, periodic noise in the far distance. And it turns out that so does everyone else. And they can't decide. Some people think it's a set of drums. Some people think it's a dog. Some people start to wonder if it's a, a, a black dog. You know, that, that kind of haunted, ghostly black dog. Uh, and eventually, you know, as as per usual, Dixon is the only person in the party with any real guts. And so mm-hmm. he sets off in the dark of the night to go see what this sound is. And it's actually the trudging of a large... Let me see how he phrases it. A very large Native American with a net output of light comparable to that of a forge tramping up a river. Which is apparently... Another piece of local folklore. Yeah. They continue on westward and end up finding themselves in this strange cave that's huge, essentially. There are a lot of words devoted to its size, but it's massive, and in the cave... Mason sees these just kind of general allusions to society, to civilization, to religion. But Dixon sees hidden writings on the ceiling of this large dome cavern. Mm -hmm. And weirdly enough, uh, Dixon is really upset at the cave. Something about it's really making him unsettled. And he he really starts to feel like something about this cave... Something about this cave is eldritch, is how he phrases it. Yeah. And so I I thought, just to kind of take a, a pause there, that... So I was reading this this section um, for the first time with uh, Mason's journal uh, open, not like a physical. I had Brett's link open, um, and that that part on page four ninety seven where Mason describes it, the entrance is an uh, an arch about six yards in length and four feet in height. That's taken directly from his journal, and it stands out so much within all the other entries leading up to it and after it that it just immediately grabbed my attention. And so I went on this, um, I probably spent an hour online just trying to find out where that cave was to see if it was something that I could get to like see pictures of it or anything like that. Never found anything. Uh, so I reached out to Brett and, um, he actually, he, he does cover it in his companion and I wanted to kind of bring it up real quick. Cause I, I just thought this was such an interesting little, tidbit that he put in there because not only did he um use mason's words verbatim in in the book but it also you know i think Pinchon clued in on the fact that that stood out in the journal as well and spun off this whole thing with with 
Mason and Dixon having these kind of differing views on what it was and its significance. Um, but Brett, in his reply, said, uh, here's a big note I have on the cavern. 498.11, um, world ellipses stars, as above, so below, C487.31, and the great chain of being are both relevant here. Mason is having a spiritual epiphany about life, nature, etc. He's used to seeing these ideas in the stars, but recognizing order and beauty below, below ground as well has shaken something loose. Whether it will last is an open question, but it's worth noting that amid the fear of the uncivilized that opens the episode, Mason he has here found a powerful reverent appreciation for Earth as a natural entity. As Schmidt argues, maybe the key contrast in the novel isn't exactly that between modern and ancient ways of knowing, uh, knowing science and religion, but that between uh, heaven-centered versus earth-centered forms of knowledge, both ancient and modern. Uh, and he provides a link to that quote. The, uh, as to the location of the cave, the copy of the journal I used throughout the process has the following note. Unfortunately, the cave, which was about eight miles east of Hagerstown near Cavetown, Maryland, has been destroyed by rock quarrying in recent years. Um, so, unfortunately, it's no longer available to like actually see anything of, but... Um, I definitely thought that was a really interesting part of that chapter, um, just especially how important that cave was, you know, something that wouldn't really seem too out of the ordinary just becomes this suddenly huge part of, of both Mason and Dixon's, uh, time in that area. Yeah. It, it's, it's especially interesting because of just how brief it is. Because, yeah, attention is paid to it. You know, it, it, it jumps back to the part of the room and Ives and Ethelmer comment on everything. But it really is, you know, it's a page and a half, really, two pages of, you know, pretty sparse description of this thing that seems like it's going to be fairly impactful for the characters. I also did like in this chapter... Um... Aside from the, the prank war, there were some pretty funny parts in here. Um, the fact that I think it was Mason that sleeps with his eyes open um, and how much it creeped Dixon out. And that, I've seen people that do that, and it's weird. So I, I totally understand that sense of uh, unease when you see someone who, who is sleeping like that. It's just really unsettling. Um, but it also... There was some really great, and not just in this chapter, but in, in the subsequent chapters as well, there's some really great um, horror writing that, that is kind of scattered throughout here and, and where Pinchon's description of the atmosphere and, and the area that they're in uh, really works to set a really uncomfortable and, and just disturbing kind of um, atmosphere. Yeah, and it's contrasted really well with the, the humor that, it, that really makes up the rest of this chapter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like like Dixon being a dog person was one of my favorite yeah, parts of this. Point. <laughs> and how misunderstood that ended up becoming. Well, back there, moving on to chapter fifty-two, I suppose. Mm -hmm. They, the, the 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 leading pair basically, as they turn back after dropping off some of their tools, they uh they they, they turn back to go east and find out. Dixon finds out that his mentor Emerson actually isn't as crazy as everybody thinks he is. Mm -hmm. That it, that it turns out, you know, he wears his coat backwards because, yeah, it actually makes sense when you're walking through the wind. You know, you don't want that to be where the gap is. 
and then it evolves into this conversation really about uh, power dynamics, interpersonal power dynamics and how they shape our world. Yeah, I really liked the the way that Emerson is is brought back into this and and I found myself agreeing with him about the coat like initially when when he pops up and, and we learn about his his crisscross style of of dress like it's easy to laugh it off but then yeah when when someone presents the argument of like this is why he actually was doing it 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 tracks it makes sense i would you know i don't know why we don't do well i mean the explanation for it is why is in there but um that was yeah i found myself like okay well he's got a point i'm i'm not sure i'm i'm completely sold because yeah absolutely servants make it a lot easier to have a, a back fastening or sort of a front fastening coat because you don't want to be stabbed in the back but a back fastening coat um i think would be pretty unfastenable for most people that's true i think it would have to be maybe that's why i just prefer wearing like when i wear like a hoodie or anything it's just it's a pullover i don't yeah i think that, like a serape or a poncho yeah. it covers that covers everything a little bit better and we, we, we get to see a conversation shortly afterwards where Mason and Dixon begin recalling trading stories about the the very their very early years when the, some of those later Jacobite rebellions were still happening in northern England where both of mm-hmm. them are from. And for people who don't know, Jacobites are essentially the the Stuart lineage of uh, Scottish kings. For about three generations, ruled the UK. It didn't go too well. I'm not entirely sure about the details on that. But nobody was very happy with it, and that led to the Settlement Act, which, you know, made it so that only English Protestants could be the king of the UK, king or queen of the UK. And uh, Northerners and Scots were not happy about that, so they just uh, had had some, uh, you know, we, we could call them squabbles, uh, civil wars, if you'd like. And both the both the English armies and the the, the rebel armies would use uh, bagpipes to essentially as, as essentially war cries to terrify the people that they were going into fight. And so that's the thing that both of them recall the best from those periods of their very young lives. This terrifying sound. <laughs> those um those scenes like especially with with Mason, there was a really I I thought um really heartbreaking scene where you see uh some interaction with his father and how like how much his father looked down on him because of what he wanted to do because of his, his want to, to be an astronomer. Um, and how his, his father basically just thought it was a useless profession that wouldn't get him anywhere and wouldn't, you know, lead to any respectable accomplishments or anything like that. And I think that, you know, we, at this point in the story, it's been a while since we've heard or seen any, any interactions between Mason and his, and his dad. So, um, it kind of drives home that relationship that they had and how that has made Mason into the, the man that he is. Yeah, and it stands as contrast, not, not stark contrast, but contrast to the other scenes in which we've seen uh, Charles Sr. 
in the other scenes, we see him, we, we see mostly through his perspective, actually. Uh, and we see the reasons for what he does. And we see him be cruel, and we see him be mean, and we see him treat his son the way that, you know, probably, probably best not to. Mm-hmm. But in this scene, we just, we just have cruelty. There, there is no yeah. reason... You know, there there is no plausible argument of, oh, I'm just worried about your future, son. You know, he'd never admit that, but that's that's what's going on in his head in the other scenes. But in this case, there's nothing like that. He is just being mean to his child. Yeah. Yeah, especially when he, you know, when Mason offers to, to stay and help, um, his his dad's response is, what do you do? Point your telescope at them? You'll be worse than useless. They'll, be, they'll shoot you the moment that you present them with that vacant face. And like that shit's harsh. Like just to, you know, as, as a father, like I could never imagine speaking to my kids like that. Um, and it, it's, you know, the, the fact that Mason is the way he is, I think you can really trace a lot of that back to how his dad treated him. And I think Pinchon does a really good job of, of presenting someone who went through that kind of, um, not, not necessarily physical abuse, although I think that was there. I think that was alluded to earlier in the book, but definitely, you know, he's definitely being emotionally abused by his, his father. And it's definitely, you know, shown itself in, in the way his relationships work. Yeah. And th- this is a great example of, of something that, I, you know, I, I hope this isn't too controversial, but it is often framed as though, you know, physical abuse is somehow an escalation of emotional or mental abuse, however you want to frame it interpersonal relationship abuse um but in this does demonstrate that these horrible things that mason's father has done are not being beaten which it sure seems like everyone else in this in this time period was was being beaten by their parents maybe not everyone but the vast majority of people (laughs) mason's the one with the problems mason's the one with the, the daddy issues and not to minimize physical abuse in the least but just to point out, it's not an escalation. It that they are, they are different. They are not. Yeah. There, there's no ranking them. Yeah. No, you're you're absolutely right. The other thing, so something I thought was interesting in this chapter that I don't know if either of you um, ca- caught on to this in the same way I did, but there's so the mention on on five oh five. Um, where they're talking about Dixon having his um, infatuation with, with uh, quote, old Hellcat herself, Elizabeth Lady Barnard. Um, there was, so when I looked it up on the pinch on Wiki, just knowing that that was going to be a person, um, I was kind of curious as to who it was. I, I don't think, and, and Brett or, or Luke Orwell, correct me if I'm wrong here, I don't think it's who they're saying it is on the Pinchon wiki. So they have it listed as um, Elizabeth Lady Barnard, formerly Elizabeth Nash, nay Elizabeth Hall, was the granddaughter of the famous English poet and playwright William Shakespeare and was also his last descendant. That's true, but the time frame doesn't track, and the fact that she's referred to as old Hellcat doesn't track either. Um, when I ended up searching up that nickname that old hellcat nickname i stumbled on uh, elizabeth vane lady barnard who um from 
just regular Wikipedia, I found uh, her disputes in this, I'm quoting this director from there, her disputes with her family led to a noted court case and her ghost is reported to haunt Raby Castle near Durham. For her part in the dispute, Elizabeth gained the nickname Old Hellcat. There really wasn't a, a whole lot else about her, but that seems to track more with the description of this person in here uh, than the the person mentioned on the wiki. Yeah, I think you're completely right. However, uh, what, yeah, what's think the right. name of the real or of the one you think? Uh, Elizabeth Vane is who I stumbled on. Yeah, no, I I was curious if maybe you know she would have actually been alive during Dixon's childhood, but so no. nope. yeah. she seventeen oh, sorry sixteen fifty seven to nineteen to seventeen twenty five. So that part also doesn't track though, because you know it's mentioned in, on, on page five hundred five who died back in forty two. So clearly not the same oh, yeah. time frame. So I don't know. Like I, I'm not sure if this is some kind of amalgam of those two people. The Shakespeare connection, I would I, I get that would make sense. But it, you know, that does, she didn't have that nickname. Elizabeth Vane does have that nickname, and Raby Castle. Correct me if I'm wrong. Has been mentioned in this book before. Yeah. So, I tend to lean towards that being who this is. But again, that time frame. You know, this is the book is saying she died almost 20 years later than she actually did. Obviously, you know, this is not a work of primarily historical right. fiction. Right. It, it, it is it is historical, but it is not it is not accurate. Uh, is, is this an attempt to very clearly delineate this is unreal by having nothing line up? See, that's what I'm thinking because the the attention to historical accuracy when when it's presented as being historically accurate is is in, in my mind at least it's in, it's really really detailed and accurate down to at least you know the information available in the time that this book was written obviously some you know things may have changed since then and new discoveries may have been found but for this to be so i don't want to say far off but it's it's so much more um kind of pushed out of that timeline and and sort of introducing itself into a sort of alternate history which i think you could classify this in a sense as an alternate history uh novel you know that that definitely could be what he was what he was doing with that so yeah elizabeth nash lady elizabeth lady Bar bernard see that's the other thing is it's listed as b-e-n-b-e-r um was born in 1608 died in 1670 well, this this was about the period of time, the, the the time that the book is supposedly that Mason and Dixon is being told from, is the you know the seventeen seventies is seventeen mm. eighties is about the same time that like spelling became consolidated. So Barnard, B E R or A R would have been the same, I think. Yeah. However, um, yeah, no, I mean, there, so there's nothing in here that in the book itself that refers to. Elizabeth Vane, is there? Not that I recall. It's just that her... Or, sorry, sorry. Uh, Elizabeth Nash. Nothing refers to Elizabeth Nash. Um, Elizabeth Vane is much closer in terms of death date mm -hmm. and fits the character better, for sure. I don't know. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. I'm I'm curious if if Brett picked up on that as well, and if if he has some 
insight on that. Yeah, because you know, even ex you know, excusing like the the thing is that the the true inaccuracies we've seen the the historical inaccuracies that are not essentially poetic license that we've seen so far are like basically extensions of poetic license. They are things like Susanna Peach's father being a different Sam Peach from the one who would have had much say in the in the Dutch East India or sorry <laughs> the English East India Company. Mm -hmm. And that's really, I mean, that is just poetic license. It, this is truly just making stuff up. Yeah. All right, it's interesting. I'd be curious to know what, um, what the inspiration was there, how he yeah. came on. The Thomas Pynchon, if you're listening, get at us. Let us know. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm dying to know. That's my only yeah. question I would have for you. Well, so basically what, what, what we're talking around here is that we get a flashback to an even younger Dixon mm -hmm. learning about flying, learning about William Emerson uh, from creeping around Raby Castle, seeing the ghost of Lady Barnard uh, walking around with giant red hot knitting needles. Yep. Complaining loudly about her chauffeur being late to escort her some somewhere. I mean, she's a ghost. I don't, I don't know how yeah. the rules of ghosts work in this world. I mean, clearly Rebecca can do whatever the heck she wants, but Rebecca's you know losing herself. This woman, you know, it's been at least 10, 10 to twenty years. She seems pretty stable. Yeah, I mean, enough so to complain about traffic, or yeah. what should be the lack thereof. Yeah, which it, it, that scene is hilarious. Yeah, but then we, you know, we, we find out that that is genuinely that 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 kind of non sequitur in the first few chapters of the book, where Emerson tells Dixon, "You just wanted to learn how to fly." Yeah, he meant it literally. Mm -hmm. He he teaches his class how to fly, and then we just get a nice little scene where uh, the the titular duo are. You know, they've taken some tent some tent cloth and they've stiffened it up and they're sledding down hillsides in the the snow of the Alleghenies. And uh, except for one issue, they uh, both seem to have forgotten to apply friction to the, the canvas somehow. Yep. As though this is Christmas vacation. And... Yeah, they uh, Mason takes probably the safer route and just flips the sled over so he tumbles off in the snow. But Dixon decides to just see where it takes him, which happens to be a, a random pile of cushions that just happens to be out in the middle of the road that save him from running headlong into a wagon. Yeah, that scene, um, I, I love it as as setting up the ending of this chapter, and it had a very... Uh, Calvin and Hobbes feel with especially with the the sledding and the the accidents that come with that and and the just kind of reckless abandon that that Dixon has in just letting himself go wherever you know as you said wherever the sled happens to take him and happening to be lucky enough to land on a just random assortment of cushions that are out there Calvin and Hobbes is exactly the tone yeah did y'all have anything else you wanted to go over on these two chapters before we uh, dive into the interesting journey of the next two? Just, 
just that I thought it was interesting to see this this transition in the Harland household from basically the, the first winter that Mason and Dixon stay with them. They are treated, you know, with ho- with hospitality, but they are treated as uh, essentially as rude guests who are overstaying yeah. their welcome every single day they're there. Um, but, you know, Mrs. Harland at this point is hugging them and giving them gifts. It's pretty cool. Yeah. It's a nice, a nice change in the, the dynamic of, of their relationship. Yeah. Okay, so, chapter 53. Um, I mean, I'll start by saying I, I absolutely love Cherry Coke's opening here. I think it's stunningly beautifully written. I went back and read it a couple of times just to really take it in. And... And then it just goes into, uh, you know, what, what, whatever 53, chapter 53 is, which is a really, so we talked about this a little bit before recording, uh, about how we want to go about talking about these chapters, because they are, I would argue, you know, for this book, these are the most surreal parts of it. Um, it's, and it's, it's wonderfully done. You know, I, I absolutely enjoyed uh, reading these and I, what I tend to do, this is just me personally as, as a reader um, with, with sections like this where it's hard to kind of parse out exactly what is happening. Um, I tend to just get to a point where I just kind of want to sit back and, and enjoy the ride. And I just will go with the flow and just let the narrative take me and I'll catch, you know, whatever drifts in, you know, I'll, I'll grab a hold of it and, and I'll take it and that allows me to, when I come back and read it again, to pick up more parts that I didn't get the first time and really build on my, my interpretation of it. So I really enjoy chapters like this for that reason, because it is such a, a shift in uh, the narrative structure and in the plot, um, but in a good way. It doesn't seem out of place, and it doesn't seem jarring, really. I mean, it is, it is jarring in a sense, but it's not to the point that it makes me want to stop reading the book. If anything, it makes me want to keep going and, and just see where the, where this, where this happens to go. Yeah. I, I will say before we get any further into it, into any details, I'll say normally, I don't think any of us feel the need to disclaimer spoilers or anything like that on, on these podcast episodes. First of all, because I think that if you're tuning into a, a podcast that has chapter titles in the name, you should probably understand that it's it's something of a book club, and if you haven't read it, then you're probably not going to get a lot out of it. But on the off chance that there's some, I don't know whether you're you're crazy or a genius, listening to us without having read the book, <laughs> or at least these chapters so far, um, go and read chapters 53, 54, and 55 before continuing to listen, because we will... We will dissect the frog in this one. The, the, this is this is I will not say it's a magical series of chapters, but it's pretty damn close, and it, it's very, um, it's very pleasant to become lost in it and to try and understand what's going on, even if you don't have any success in the matter. Um, but we will sit here and dryly discuss this very cool thing that's about to happen in the book 
So uh, go go and enjoy it before we kill it. Yeah, definitely. That's a. I think that's an important disclaimer to put on there. You're you're absolutely right. So, um, what the hell is going on in these chapters? Um, it's so I think chapter fifty three opens with uh, an unnamed woman at the time unnamed, who is. Uh, essentially abducted and um, taken on, I would say, a rather interesting journey. Yeah, it's, it seems like she's abducted, I don't know if it says specifically where, but somewhere in like eastern or western Pennsylvania in a small little town, and she's abducted and taken all the way up north to like near Montreal, I imagine, or Quebec City. Mm-hmm. And... There's a complete change in tone in these chapters to, as you identified before we started recording, Cody, a, a certain kind of, a, a, a color, not, not, not in a figurative sense, literally a bunch of colors are, are named, which the book is not black and white, but maybe sepia-toned before this. And we kind of don't know who the narrator is because we don't know who any of these characters are. Until, until the end of chapter 54, we don't get the name of the central character of this part of the book. And we hear as she is kind of in wonder over being abducted from this life that she was very satisfied with, that in, in fact the narrator says, you know, she, she her... Our Lord had intended she live. Um, and, and she essentially, it turns out that I don't know if any of us, uh, anyone else felt this way the first time through the book, but when we're at the, the Redato earlier at Castle Lepton, Casino Lepton maybe, and we hear about Ostra joining the, the Widows of Christ. I, I, I don't know about you all, but I kind of just assumed that that was a made-up story by this guy to just kind of fill time. But no, it turns out she has been abducted and is being uh, trained to be a Widow of Christ. And along the way, she's amazed that these, these, quote, wild men uh, aren't violating her, essentially. But when she gets there, she is essentially violated, I would say. Yeah, it certainly seems that way. Um, in case nobody remembers, at this, point in t- uh, at this point in time, it's been a while since Castle leapt on, but... Um, the, the Widows of Christ are, seem to be some kind of sect of nuns that we find out in this chapter are being used by the Jesuit order to seduce and control Chinese, I assume, politicians and, and other people in power in, in Eastern Asia. And all of this is in pursuit of killing feng shui which a character we are introduced to fairly obliquely in this chapter, the Wolf of Jesus, a Spanish Jesuit priest, 
explains in a long interrupted monologue that essentially Jesus wants right angles and straight lines and it's it's their job as the society of Jesus to impose this across the world by force if necessary and it turns out that this this wolf of Christ actually or this wolf of Jesus actually doesn't believe in conversion he believes that if you are not a uh, if you're not a born Christian, presumably if you're not a born Catholic, that you you will never be converted, that you are at some point in time going to turn back into your original faith and uh, be sent to hell anyway. So he kind of sees it as sees genocide and conversion of six of one and half dozen of the other. I'm just, I'm, I'm going to say that maybe it would be best if we brush over some of the more um, specific things that happen in this chapter. Because some people have said many times, this is a book that you could read to your children. This, these chapters are basically the only part that is sexually explicit to the yeah. degree that it would be unadvisable. Yeah, absolutely. I don't, I don't think we want to really talk about those except for in broad terms. Yeah, I do think it's interesting that it's implied that the women are... Um, somehow supposed to occupy both the both the role of the i mean i don't i i got the impression that they were supposed to basically be prostitutes in one way or another and yet they're also being trained to seemingly be missionaries as well um which is kind of a dichotomy that i found interesting um and surprising to think about um I'm not 100% that I'm interpreting that correctly, but I do think that that's in there. Um, it's definitely kind of a twist on, I forget what they're called, but they're like called black cloisters or something. They're, a, they're kind of a meme that's happened throughout you know, Western stories since you know Catholicism has been in control of Europe. And it's just this kind of idea of you know a, a cloister where nuns are except that they are not nuns. They are Satanists who believe that, you know, essentially doing doing sexual things is worshipping Satan. There's It's often a, a trope in lascivious material, I'll say. Yeah, I, I see where you're coming from with it, Luke, and I. it's not something I picked up on necessarily while I was reading it, but after you've mentioned it, I'm... I'm kind of playing with that idea and I can absolutely see that connection. And I think that, so we kind of talked about this a little bit again, before we started recording that this, these last few chapters here are the most, I think in line, at least in its, in its, in its style with gravity's rainbow. And I'm curious if they were, if they were written around that time, because it kind of plays with a lot of that. Um, there's a lot of elements of, of, religious dominance and sexual dominance being intertwined and it has a i think kate and i were talking about this earlier um that it there's a, a kind of yodorowsky feel to it like especially if you've seen like holy mountain or el topo that it has that kind of feel as far as it's it's um connection between the the religious and the sexual yeah the acid western um, yeah. like spirit vision, vision quest type stuff. Yeah. 
Uh, one thing I did find somewhat interesting about these chapters and their portrayal of the Jesuit order is that I, I do believe in that maybe Brett or uh, one of our listeners who knows more about this kind of stuff can correct me. Uh, but I did read um, on Wikipedia uh, a fair amount about the um, status of these soldiers for Christ or whatever, the Jesuit order around this time. And I think that um, around the time that this book is set, around the time these chapters are set, although I guess we're in the ghastly fop, so it's unclear when all of this is happening. Um, anyways, uh, it's. I think this was around the time when Jesuits were getting pretty persecuted in North America, in both Canada and in America. Uh, I believe that I read that there was something like only like 20 Jesuit priests in Quebec around this time because um, I think they might have banned um, new Jesuit priests from coming to America and to Canada. Um, so that's not really necessarily in the book as much. I mean, they do kind of seem... Um, there is kind of a secretiveness uh, and a kind of like almost intelligence agency type feel to this to these chapters um which again kind of reminds me of gravity's rainbow and the white visitation and gravity's rainbow yeah it, it in, in case anybody's unaware and i believe we've mentioned it in passing before but the important context for this section is that the jesuits in north america up until this point predominantly provided moral justification for the wars waged by Spanish conquistadors against natives. Um, and so many people, and this is, you know, th this would have been profoundly progressive for the time, but somebody like Dixon would have had it in mind constantly, that the, the Jesuits were to a large extent responsible for those effective genocides. And that the, the Jesuits, even as early as this, were running schools that were trying to uh, deculture uh, the natives and, and trying to indoctrinate them with Catholicism. They were running work camps. The oftentimes bishops or priests of local diocese would be incredibly corrupt across the entirety of North America. So there was there was good reason for the church to basically respond to this public backlash and say, okay, we will not send Jesuits to North America anymore. And often Jesuits, in pop culture at least, for, for the purposes of this book, are, are viewed as kind of the source of rationality in the Catholic Church. And here we see where that lines up with some of the broader themes of the novel, where we, we have the wolf of Jesus standing here lecturing on how horrible feng shui is, which, you know, I, I don't know too much about feng shui, but it's it seems to me a little deranged to say that basically we should kill whoever we have to in order to erect straight lines to stop this feng shui. And that begins to get into discussions uh, broader in the book about the the living earth i suppose mm -hmm. what 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 are the real motivations here is this an excuse because it could be an excuse it could just be that the jesuits or at least this jesuit says hey we want china we want to be in control of china in some way shape or form 
orders it legitimately. He just thinks feng shui is Satan worship, and so it must be stopped at all costs. Or is it something more subtle? Is there something demonic about the earth itself? Or is there something demonic about Catholicism itself in the context of this book? And I think I think that's really the, the, the center of those last couple of pages, chapter 53, is to demonstrate the way that the Jesuits are not just acting in North America. And in fact, the, the paranoia that we've seen throughout the book about Dixon being a Jesuit because of his, you know, Jacobite associations, being a northerner, and his uh, very vague associations to Le Maire. Uh, it all stems from the paranoia of, of the Jacobite rebellions, and it's a very English, Anglo-centric way of viewing the world, when it's clear that the Jesuits don't care about that. The Jesuits do not care about taking over England. Apparently not. Apparently, they got bigger fish to fry, like all of China. I'm I'm glad you brought that up because it really kind of sets, especially if you look at this historically. You know when it's taking place and the anti, really, I mean the anti-Asian, but really even more specific, more specifically the anti-Chinese and, and anti-Japanese sentiment that would kind of filter into America, um, in the centuries after this, um book takes place one thing i find interesting is um and there's the concept of orientalism uh which is i'm not i did study a bit in grad school in a post-colonial class um i honestly i kind of wish i had i still have the textbook for that class and i kind of wish i had consulted it and reread that the section about concerning orientalism uh, but there is kind of a and I, I, I do think that this is intentional on Pynchon's part. I'm not accusing him of, of uh, kind of, you know, like, if I were to accuse a, a modern writer of Orientalism, it wouldn't, of unconscious, un, unintentional Orientalism, I, 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 don't, I wouldn't do it as a, as a compliment. But I do think that Pynchon is kind of commenting on um, alterity and othering and... Um, how you know? I think the Jesuits just kind of in that in that very Christian, very uh, missionary type way of assuming that the Chinese need saving and that the the Chinese you know practice of feng shui is is you know of the devil and all that stuff. You know there is a a, a, a presumption of of uh, of them being correct in the you know the so called native. Although we don't usually think of people in China as as you don't you don't say the word native and then think of people in China, but um, I do think that that's in there the concept of Orientalism and the concept of othering and alterity. Um, also, I mean, just kind of generally, I do think that it's kind of interesting that the Jesuits are associated with this obsession with straight lines. And with kind of arbitrary delineations between different, uh, you know, arbitrary kind of borders and stuff. Um, it's something that has, that I do have a little bit of experience with, you know, traveling as much as I have. Um, the areas that I've been to in Africa, they're not nearly as, like, you know, like the, the way that the British um, kind of, like, drew borders and frontiers in the Middle East. 
I know has has caused a lot of issues. I know that actually, I yeah, I mean, I haven't ever been to Rwanda, um, but if you've seen Hotel Rwanda and you're aware of all that stuff, you know, a big part of the reason that those tragedies happened, those insane, uh, horrible massacres happened, is because of um, kind of arbitrarily drawn borders that created um, uh, inequality between different tribes and stuff. It does seem like the British were intentionally trying to piss people off with the a lot of the borders they created in terms of... Um, uh like creating my like minority you know like using using the minority um like say the sunni or shiite say the sunnis are the minority then they would give the the sunnis power um even though they were the minority in the country and if they had actually done a good job with borders then the country would be pretty much only shiite or only sunni uh this comes up a lot in the discussion of kurdistan and the in the modern plight of the kurds um and it also is a big part of the reason that, uh, yeah, that tragedy in Rwanda happened um, is these kind of arbitrary, uh, not, you know, like the, the uh, I think Zhang, Zhang talks about uh, how borders should be drawn along natural, natural boundaries, such as mountains and rivers, um, things that have always kind of, um you know like you know like east like this this did come up actually last week too is you know east of the mississippi west of the mississippi east of the alleghenies west of the alleghenies um you know these like the type these types of things like mountain ranges and rivers and stuff that were difficult to cross would have been a kind of bigger deal um in the past you know like we don't we don't necessarily like if you know when you're in Colorado, you don't necessarily think that the other side of the mountains um, are going to be super different from the side that you're on. Uh, but that's because we have highways and we can fly over them and, you know, all that stuff. But in the old, you know, in the old days, those would be viewed as like very big natural boundaries, very big natural obstacles um, that would kind of be natural to um, to make borders out of them. Um, I'm kind of rambling, I guess, but I do think that all of that's there. Um, and yeah, especially the Orientalism is, is interesting to think about, um, considering that Zhang eventually takes on the form of the Wolf of Jesus, I believe, and mm -hmm. starts to look a lot like him and seems to kind of un-other himself and kind of normalize himself. Um, yeah, and I, I, I think you're... You, you know, rambly or not, I think you're you're completely correct. I think all of that stuff is in here, and I think the the big thing to take note when it comes to discussing the Orientalism in this section is the moment where jumping ahead just a tad, you have Zhang and Eliza. It turns out, um, on the road, refugees. And she, um, I'm going to read on 535. But he is gazing at her with those enigmatic Chinese eyes she pretends she cannot read. And that, that is, that's salient, because, um, first of all, the whole enigmatic Chinese eyes thing, still, still alive and well today. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, 
this is this is the point. She's pretending that she sees his eyes as exotic and hard to understand. And in a very direct sense, I think you can read that as saying, this is, this is a pretend. This is not real Chinese people have magic and do all of this stuff. This is, this is the crazy kind of thing that colonists think about the Chinese at this point in time. Yeah. And in fact, he's ascribing a lot of agency to the colonists there. He's not just saying, oh, well, they were stupid. So they thought that Chinese people were different from themselves. What he is saying is specifically, they're choosing not to see them as equals, at least. Or Eliza isn't. So before we go forward into 54 and 55, I did want to circle back uh, to the the mention of colors in these chapters and you will when will when you were talking about it earlier um it it popped into my head that that shift from as you described it the kind of sepia tone of the previous 52 chapters up until now the shift into these particular chapters it kind of has it, it made me think of the wizard of oz and that shift from black and white into color um and there is, yeah, there's a lot, I, I picked up on this as I was reading through it, is that there's a lot of mentions, not just of colors, but as you said, very specific colors. And I wanted to kind of touch on those uh, a little bit here, because especially when it comes to, there's mention of roses that comes up later in this chapter that um, I think is kind of important to the journey that Eliza goes on. But just to kind of point out some of these mentions of colors, so uh, you have like, there's a, a Brief part here, this says, sunsets the colors of the hearth that she may never see. Um, later on, imagining them all rowing out together into this yellow splendor, these painted indigo and salmon cloud formations. Um, there's, there's just some really um, beautiful use of, of color to really get home um, what we're seeing, uh, the, the area that we're seeing, the vibrancy of, of this sort of dream state that we're experiencing a gray deck of snow clouds a great green prism of brazilian tourmaline um which I, that one i meant to look in more into tourmaline because I, I figured there was some symbolism in that specifically especially given the the use of rose quartz and oolite earlier on but then we get on so page 518 um there's a mention of white roses uh have you indians collected you have your Indians collected you enough of these white roses that you might spare one? So I went, to, I went down this kind of rabbit hole looking into the symbology of, of rose colors, and it's a very real thing, and it, it has a long history to it. So white roses are supposed to represent new beginnings or farewells. So we, you can kind of see that as this is Eliza's farewell to the life that she was living and what she was taken away from. Uh, a couple pages later on 520, um, her gaze inclining to the hothouse rose, deep red, nearly black, whose supple long stem is expertly twisted into a breech clout. Um, and that's being placed on her, you know, as Will said, I don't, I don't want to go into too much of the details here because it gets pretty explicit in its content. But um, so the, the red rose is representative of beauty. And given the, the transition that she's now going through, it fits. Uh, and then the, the, the mention of nearly black. So black roses are meant to represent death. 
Um, so I'm, I'm kind of seeing this as a, a journey of the killing off of her old self and the formation of this new Eliza, essentially. And I think that comes into play a little bit later. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit um, because on 535, uh, which is in, I want to say it's in chapter 54, but I could be wrong. It is. Yeah, it's in 54. Um, they, they refer to her as Viudita, which is a, a way of saying a new or young widow. So she's essentially now completely disconnected from that previous life. And we, and we have a mention, um, I should have written down the page because we were talking about this before, uh, before we recorded, but the fact that she's, you know, she talks about her husband and, and how the person that she sees in this dream she has, I think it was on 529, yep. um, that she doesn't recognize her, him as her husband. Um, so it's kind of, I, I think throughout this whole thing, um, at, at least what I picked up on in this reading is, you know, as I mentioned, kind of just flowing through here and letting things catch as they come is this, this journey that Eliza goes on through this sort of bizarre religious sexual transition into a wholly new person who is to be utilized by this, this group who have taken her for whatever purposes they see fit in, in, in using her for. Yeah. And I just, just to be a little more clear in case somebody read it and didn't understand the red rose for themselves. Uh, I think the way I sanitized it was, uh, it is an inverse chastity belt. Yeah. And we'll leave it at that. One thing I found interesting about this kind of, we were talking about, I was talking about this before we started recording, but it does seem you know, like the the frame story, the frame narrative of Wicks Cherry Coke telling us uh, this story is you know the frame narrative, the the literary conceit of the frame narrative is kind of dropped in this section. Uh, it's not really, and then I think by the end of chapter fifty five, we're back in the like you know the 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 verbal storytelling of Wicks Cherry Coke, and Zhang seems to have emerged from the pages of the ghastly fop and come into um you know entered the world of the seemingly the real world of the book the quote real world end quote of the book um which i i did there's a few different i there's a few, there's a few different things i wanted to say about that it, it but i did read in the cambridge companion to thomas pynchon uh there's a there's an interesting article on history and uh, what history has meant to the postmodern movement and how the postmodern movement has affected history. Um, and I do think that it's interesting that Pynchon seems to be kind of pointing out how artificial um, the literary conceit of the frame story is. Um, he also seems to be kind of pointing out that it's, you know, as we've been over with those anachronisms in this book, um, I, I, I don't think that Pynchon is really, really making a, a massive effort to be true to life. Um, I think partially because, you know, this book is fairly granular. Uh, we get a lot of like kind of day to day interactions where like Mason isn't going to write in his journal, you know, um, Dixon wore a, a raccoon or a, whatever that hat is, the coonskin cap, mm -hmm. uh, which I, I don't. I'm not 100% the coonskin cab itself is not a is not a also a anachronism. Um 
but he basically, you know, Pynchon gets into a lot of stuff that just can't really, we, we don't really know. Um, and so you can kind of assume that he's making it up. Um, you know, but there's a, there's a kind of, you know, you see, Pynchon seems to be kind of pointing out the artificial nature of his, of his narrative. Uh, there's an aspect of the people that have studied history as it relates to postmodernism. I think there's a few different uh, aspects of it. I think there's the the Cambridge Companion article, which is again about history and pension, points out that there's three aspects of history or three aspects of history that are that have kind of been added by postmodernism. I'm I'm a little bit confused about. I'm I'm blanking on some of them, but one of them is that it's polyvocal. Um, which also comes into play in this one because, you know, the, the writer of the ghastly fop seems to kind of take over, uh, I think in either the next section for next week or the section after that, Zhang kind of takes over and tells a story about a Chinese emperor, uh, at various times, uh, you know, like the, the, the spark or whatever takes over the narrative for a little bit. Um, but, uh, you know, that's, emphasizing the 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 fact that you know one person's perspective on on history is is not ne- nearly as important as the kind of spectrum of perspectives as a part of postmodernism and its effect on the uh, history and historiography um another one is just how you know like the fact that storytelling is a very essential part of of uh documenting history and to write a history book, to write a history paper, you often have to come up with some sort of narrative, um, even if it's not necessarily like, you know, it's it's a lot more telling than showing, maybe. Um, but, you know, the narrative is, is it's um, a very central part. It has become a very central part of uh, history. Um, and Pynchon has kind of played his own part in in that, and he's also played his own part in pointing out that history should be polyvocal. Um, yeah, I mean, I I just do think it's interesting that you know, like, I don't. It's really unclear who's you know, like, I mean, it's clear that the writer of the ghastly fop is the one that's telling us this story, but it's it's again, you know, up until now, I I want to say that the every pretty much all of the action of the novel in terms of the frame story has all been happening in the dining room. And then we just kind of randomly get stuck up in one of the younger family members rooms uh, as they're reading the ghastly fop with their cousin. And there's not, you know, there's no, there's no portrayal of, of them leaving the room um, with Wicks cherry Coke. Um, you know, there's no depiction of Wicks cherry Coke going to sleep. Um, I don't know. It's just interesting to think about, and I, I don't necessarily have any like really great takeaways uh, for what that's supposed to mean, or what it's possibly symbolic of. I, I don't really think it's necessarily supposed to mean anything, or it's supposed to be symbolic of anything. Uh, besides, like I said, kind of pointing out the artificial nature of of what Pynchon is doing. Yeah, no, that's um, that's a great point, um, and I need to get that Cambridge. Um, it's is it a there's a book right. That's a yeah. companion. Yeah, I've been meaning to get that because it looks like it's really got some interesting. Uh, it's really insight. good. There's a there's a really good. I read last night a um, uh, there's a really good article on alterity and othering uh, that focuses a lot on Slothrop and Slothrop's hmm. like fragmentation as a, as a character and how he kind of others himself and and kind of becomes 
don't know. It's, it was really interesting. It focuses a lot on Gravity's Rainbow and a little bit on Lot 49 and does kind of ignores the rest of Pynchon's work. But it's it's one of the probably it's probably my favorite piece of criticism I've come across about Pynchon is that is that article about alterity and othering. So this is this is one of my favorite um, dumb parts of not dumb parts, but uh, one of my favorite things to do when I'm reading Pynchon that is it is pretty dumb. The 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 fractions of one half, two thirds, and three quarters often tend to be pretty structurally important to his works. Um, and this section lays just across the uh, two thirds mark of Mason and Dixon. And it's not quite centered, but it roughly is centered that uh, we we leave the Cherry Coke frame narrative. We leave the parlor entirely and are trapped inside this book, inside another room. And then, strangely, um, towards the end of chapter 54, it actually melds back into uh, Cherry Coke's perspective. It, it, does, it does distinctly leave his perspective for chapter 53, and then for the first half of 54, it is primarily first-person singular from the point of view of Eliza. But then, after, um, after we have a brief resituating in the room where Ethelmer and um, Tenebrae are doing some of their, their most uh, direct flirting in the book, the, uh, it returns to her first-person perspective until, just randomly, it switches over back to the parlor room and the other uncles, or the, the other listeners and uncles, just commenting on the story as though these are the same story, as though one of these wasn't extemporaneously told by um, Wix Cherry Coke and the other weren't published as a serial that seems to date back to the time of Mason and Dixon surveying the line. It, it's, it is naughty. It is incredibly dense and I, I can't quite extricate it all. And I, I, I think I mentioned last episode my harebrained theories about ampersands. I was just about to bring that back up. <laughs> Um, but and, and something that is discussed a lot when you look up um, against the day to, to and this is not a spoiler for against the day in any way um, but if you look up on Google Scholar against the day one thing that's quite often pointed out is that you can frame it as a Mobius strip um, in, in, a, in a way that to explain would require spoilers however Mason and Dixon which I read long before against the day or ever heard that theory, I, I feel does exemplify that to, to a large extent because there is this inversion of the story itself it, or almost more of a Klein bottle where the, the inside of the story, this story inside the story becomes the, the frame narrative in which we are actually reading the rest of the story, which is a frame narrative which contains the form, the, 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 you know, the, whatever the name is, the kidnappers, or the kidnapped tale. It, it, it really is non-orientable as a novel as a result of these two chapters. There is no outside. There is no truth 
here. There is no reality because Eliza, the captor or the captive, and Zhang, who who who, who helps her escape, um, run back into Mason and Dixon, and well, it, the stories completely converge despite the fact that they have no context for one another. Despite the fact that, you know, I, I, I guess, theoretically, Wick's Cherry Coke could have been writing the ghastly fop this whole time. <laughs> or yeah, he could have. He could have written a, uh, an unofficial, uh, like, uh, forgery or whatever. Yeah, he, he could have been just a massive fan and has been ripping it off the whole time. And, you know, Ethelmer has just has just been missing it or he just hadn't gotten to the point yet because, you know, this does converge at this point with the, the ghastly fop does converge with the Mason and Dixon story at this point in time. But yeah, it's, I, I, you know, I've turned this over and over in my head for hours. I'm confident over the course of years at this point. And it is, I don't think it's resolvable. There is no solution to this. There is, this is not a puzzle box. This is not something to be sussed out. This is just essentially an MC Escher painting in text form, this whole book. I think, and especially yeah. this part too, yeah, with the, with the fact that it's, we're in a different book and then the, that book is then folded into you the main book and all that stuff, it definitely kind of is, is reminiscent of that kind of, kind of thing where it's like all these links and staircases to different things that, you know, don't really make sense, but they still happen. So the last, uh, I guess kind of major thing I want to touch on regarding these chapters is it kind of goes back to, you know, because so much of these three chapters kind of circle back into itself um is the you know as we mentioned earlier the the conflict between the the wolf of jesus and the portrayal i guess you know or the or the idea of of feng shui and how that uh it kind of feeds into the i think the overall narrative and the the concept of borders and i know y'all brought this up earlier you know about the the idea of the natural border versus the man made border and you know that's that's really shown through you know the the wolf of Jesus and his want for these you know angular lines of of delineation and and distinction and and Zhang's desire for a more natural um free flowing border you know if even there is a border at all you know if there has to be one to have it that way because with feng shui and i I don't know too much about it, but I did look a little bit into it just for uh to get some insight on these particular chapters. Um, and so it's, it's interesting that this is so, you know, because that whole concept of, of feng shui, I think is very important to uh, what Pinchon's trying to get, you know, in, in really how, you know, placing these borders, these arbitrary borders on the land you know, we, we've talked about before how, you know, it, it has these impacts, these, these scars upon the earth. Uh, as it's mentioned later on, the, you know, uh, Zhang talks about how it's the, the wolf of Jesus is his destiny to inflict these telluric injuries uh, as it is mine to resist them. And it's the, 
I'm, I'm trying to think of how to really articulate this, um, but it's, I, I think it's really being emphasized here that our desire, our drive to, to place these borders, to, to inflict these scars on the land is essentially the cause of the, the, of the this evilness that is felt throughout the book, you know, and, and we get another mention I, I think was interesting uh, at the very beginning of chapter 55 of that kind of evil wind that was present, <clears throat> present on St. Helena, uh, where it says, imagine a wind, a truly ill wind bringing failure, poverty, disgrace, betrayal, every kind of bad luck there is all blowing through night and day with many times the force of the worst storm you were ever in. Um, and I looked a little bit into the, the Luopan that was meant that's mentioned um, throughout that, that Zhang uses. And it, it was pretty interesting. I don't want to try to, you know, provide too much cause I'm not in any way, any kind of an expert on it, but it's really interesting, especially on, on five forty four when we see this kind of dichotomy between how Dixon and Zhang use compasses um, and their purpose in doing it. And it, that kind of all, you know, I'm, I'm getting way off, off track here. Uh, but it's, you know, I, I think this idea of feng shui versus this, uh, this, you know, angular distinction and borders is, is a hugely important part of not just these chapters, but really of this whole book. Saying that, um, you know, it's a Catholic character that's saying this, it does kind of, um, you know, there is kind of an artificiality to the Catholic Church. I'm not. I've been to uh, mass a few times just with friends whenever I was growing up. I don't have a ton of experience with the Catholic Church, but you know, like I mean, they they wear all these fancy robes. Um, you know, as opposed to like Buddhism, where there's not, you know, there's no there's no real barriers between you and um you know, enlightenment or, you know, Buddhism seems kind of a little bit, a lot more DIY, uh, which is mm -hmm. probably a regressive way to phrase that. But, um, you know, I think you get what I'm saying. There's not, I don't, there's not really a concept of a higher power, I think in Buddhism, or there's not nearly as much of one, but no. a big part of, uh, Catholicism is, you know, like if you have, if you have questions, it's not like figure it out yourself. It's not like read the Bible. It's ask a priest. Um, you know, they do all this stuff where they choose the Pope and the Pope wears all these different costumes. I think I think people kind of maybe innately get what I'm getting at here, where there's there's a there's just kind of an artificiality to um to the church and all and a kind of I think it's called high church as opposed to I'm not sure what that's supposed to, but it has a lot of kind of, of the trappings of of is of um of kind of it's it's highfalutin, I guess, or at least it tries to be. Um, which I do think is is perhaps maybe a part of the inspiration for why the Jesuits are portrayed as liking, you know, the artificial nature of of straight lines across a across a landscape that doesn't necessarily demand a straight line boundary. Um, I kind of wish I had a little bit more to say about that because I do think it's an interesting point. But I don't necessarily know how to how to phrase it further. Um, so I'm just kind of struggling. I don't. It's just kind of. It's just. It's interesting to me that it's a Jesuit character. You know, it's it's the the fact that he's specifically a a Catholic priest is just interesting to me. I mean, like I, you know, 
as we've been over, um, the Jesuits were not popular in England. Um, and so much of this book, in, in especially in the subtext, and it's kind of hiding behind a lot of the different actions and the different kind of more serious aspects of this book is kind of how shitty the British were, uh, how shitty colonization is, um, how colonization can kind of have a lot of negative effects uh, or almost, you know, all negative effects and very few positives. Um, and it's just kind of interesting to me that he chooses to put this, uh, to put that opinion in such a, and like the person has such an intense opinion about it uh, in the, in the mouth of a Jesuit. Um, so I would, I would, if I were writing this novel or if, if somebody had told me that somebody in Mason and Dixon, and I had some knowledge about the book, somebody had told me that somebody in Mason and Dixon had strong opinions about there should be like straight lines across um, the landscape. I wouldn't necessarily assume that it'd be a Jesuit that'd be saying it. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Um, I would, I would assume it'd be some type of British official or something like that. Um, so I, I, I'm just kind of trying to verbally investigate um, why it's, why that, why that opinion is linked to the Catholic church. Yeah. I, so there's, there's one, th- one other thing that the Jesuits are most, strongly associated with that I just barely touched on earlier, and that is education. And in a lot of ways, you can frame education as a system of control. And throughout all of all of your conversation, or I guess you're thinking there, Luke, um, I, what came to my mind was the idea that essentially the the catholic church in this time period has just come out of pretty much the the biggest drop off in power that any single organization um that didn't immediately collapse has ever experienced the from like the year 1300 to 1700 in europe the catholic church went from uh, you know, sure, there were Orthodox um, Catholics who didn't respect the Roman Church very much, or the Roman Pope very much, but they had very similar um, fundamental beliefs to something that re- really the modern nation-state paradigm, the, the, the conception of the world as people make up nations and people have religions rather than the old chain of being kind of framing of there's God and he talks to priests and below the priests are the rest of us humans and below the humans are the animals and below the animals are the is, is are the plants and so on and so forth. It, it, it really is a massive identity crisis for hundreds of years for the Catholic Church. And what, the, what you can frame this as is in the same way that earlier, which we, we barely touched on it, because this is just such a dense part of the book, and I apologize to listeners, Dixon's fear of open spaces um, kind of ties into that. He, he's afraid of these op- wide open spaces, not because it's a lack of straight lines, but because it's anyone could come from anywhere. Something could pop out from any corner, well, non-corner, from behind any bush or tree. And the, the, in this context, the Jesuits, as the, 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 the intellectual, cognitive side of the Catholic Church, are 
probably going to be, and I don't, I don't know historically this at all, if this is accurate, but, you know, especially since they were involved in early colonization efforts in North America and internationally, they are used to having power. This is power he's searching for. Whether or not there is some metaphysical fight going on, whether or not feng shui is satanic, this is this is a fight for control by the by the Catholic Church or at least the Jesuit society or at least this crazy wolf of Jesus took to control everything so really I think we've covered most of of what's going on in here in these especially these last three chapters I did want to bring up and I know I bring this up pretty often but i think it really hit a lot harder here so you, there's obviously been connections uh throughout this book to against the day um this one though there's one on, on page 548 that i think was the most direct we've had at this point where um i'll just read the, the it's a shortish paragraph uh, most unhappy recalls Mr. Everybeat. Not at all the paradise one has been led to expect. Lead out here, and uh, lead out here is a much-needed metal. Who controls lead controls the supply of ammunition for all sides in every dispute. Not to mention a segment of the telluric energy market. Celeron's lead plates may indeed have been, uh, but the visible calibrating devices for a much more extensive engine below, perhaps an array of them, and a city to surround that. A Plutonian history unfolding far below our feet, all unknown to us above, but for occasional volcanoes and earth tremors. A completely large, unsensed world held within our own light like a child in a womb waiting for some summons to light. Uh, for anyone who has read Against the Day, like that, that reads so much where it, to the scene where the Chums of Chance uh, travel to the South Pole and enter uh, into the Earth, which is found to be essentially a hollow Earth uh, wherein there's a society of, of gnomes. Um, and it, what I really thought was interesting was this also ties into the Luopan uh, that, that Zhang uses, because when I was looking into that, so it's essentially it's a compass that's used for feng shui, but it orients to the South Pole, uh, rather than most compasses that we're familiar with that orient to the North Pole. So um, I, I thought that was a really interesting connection to that story, especially it being that uh, explicit to the plot of both stories. Um so I just I just thought that was a really interesting, uh, pretty direct connection to those two. Yeah, definitely. And that does the the there is I think it's coming up pretty quick. Uh, the part where Dixon, uh, maybe it's in like a hundred pages. Maybe it's not that quick. But um, the part where Dixon, this is a bit of a spoiler, I guess. But Dixon having an experience with the hollow earth and with journeying into the earth um, from the, I think, North Pole. Um, which is, you know, a thing. And it's it's a, it's a short section of Against the Day that where that happens uh, with the Chums of Chance, but it's definitely a super memorable yeah. part of Against the Day. Um, I actually didn't know that about the, about the compass orienting to the South Pole. Um, I uh, I have actually been to Antarctica. Uh, I went with my grandma about 15 years ago, um, and I Antarctica does come up. Um, 
some some in Pynchon's work, um, and some in a few other authors' works that I like, um, such as Lovecraft. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, I kind of forget. I don't think Antarctica comes up in Mason and Dixon. I think the the focus, if it's on one of the one of the two polar regions, it's mostly on the North Pole. Um, but it's interesting that that is an aspect of feng shui that I didn't necessarily pick up on. Definitely. One thing I found interesting about the... I I know we've kind of intentionally avoided the uh, more explicit parts of, of these chapters, which I think is a good thing. Um, it does kind of make me wonder how we're going to handle Gravity's Rainbow, which is <laughs> ultra-sexual <laughs> in a lot of ways. Yeah. Well, I, I, I don't know. I'd feel less bad about somebody going into a Gravity's Rainbow podcast being exposed to some of those things. Yeah, no, I get what you're saying. That's true. Yeah. I think you kind of know what you're getting into with that. Hopefully. Yeah. yeah. But I, I did find it interesting that Yin and Yang are, are seem to be linked by Zhang to um, sex and to the, you know, like romance between a man and a woman. Um I just uh, just kind of perused the Wikipedia page for Yin and Yang, and the, there is a mention of of sex in terms of uh, gender. Um, but I, I've besides like some kind of I don't like besides like this, the position sixty nine. I haven't ever seen Yin and Yang ever really related to sex. Um, I, I was kind of surprised that the Chinese character. Uh, linked yin and yang to to sex because it it's it's such a it's such a spiritual um concept to me at least um i don't know i i, I was interested in that i didn't necessarily know where pension was was getting that from uh it could actually it's occurring to me that that could be an example of uh orientalism and you know like the the rider of the ghastly fop um most likely, you know, in the world of this book, uh, I highly doubt that the whoever the writer is, even if it's Cherry Coke or if it's uh, another author or storyteller, uh, there's very little chance that they have any direct experience with China. Will, did you have anything else that you wanted to well, touch on? Yes, but I've, lost, I've forgotten that already. But, uh, Luke, <laughs> the, my understanding... and. Uh, I am not an expert in any way, shape, or form, but for the purposes of conversation. Um, yin, and, yin and yang, my understanding of qi and sha and these, these kinds of things, and the, the, this side of Asian culture, is that the, there is this sharp divide, broadly, and a big generalizations. Um, there, there is, historically in China at least, the sharp divide between public and private life, and uh, you know, it, it, idiomatically, there's this, there's the idea of, you know, Lao Tzu, the Tao Te Ching for personal things, and Confucius, the 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 analects for, um, for 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 private life, and Taoism is very sexual. Taoism <laughs> has a has a lot of uh, sex mysticism. It, it, it is related to Hinduism in, in those ways. Maybe not, you know, in a genealogical sense, but in terms of the, the kind of vibe. Se- sexuality is viewed as spiritual in, in 
that realm in Taoism, and, and that Taoism is a source of a lot of those the, the more mystical sides of Buddhism. Yeah, I wasn't necessarily aware of that, so that's good information. Um, I do. I've always found it interesting and super hard to parse. Like it's it's one of the it's one of the most difficult uh, concepts that I've really come across ever in my life. Is kind of the interrelation between different uh, Asian religions and especially Buddhism and Hinduism, and how in some ways they're the same religion, um, and in some ways um they uh they correlate a lot uh, and they're different in other ways um because you know like i don't with abrahamic religions it does seem to be kind of it's a lot easier to kind of tell them apart and um to kind of understand the relations between them mostly because you know i, I grew up in a western country um i think yeah. i think you get what i'm saying like you know it, it's super hard to kind of figure out the the relationship between all these different Asian philosophies slash religions. Absolutely. And it, it doesn't help things at, at all. The fact that we are using terms like Hinduism, Buddhism, which, you know, broadly you can carve out a category called Buddhism, but whether you include Buddhism in the category of Hinduism is a complete matter of judgment. Some Buddhists say you can put it inside Hinduism. Some Hindus say you can put Buddhism inside Hinduism. Some say they are not related at all, despite the clear, like, direct lineage between the two of them. And not to mention the fact that, you know, within Buddhism, you have these, these two big schools of Theravada and Mahayana, one of which doesn't believe the other to be valid, and the other which believes that both are considered Buddhism. And within each of those branches, you have these tiny little sects that are founded on folk religions that are local to individual locales. And it's, it's just, it is, from our perspective, very hard to begin learning anything reliable. It's just, it is so crazy. Yeah, it definitely doesn't help that there's a seemingly endless amount of um, relevant uh, writing to Buddhism, Hinduism, all these different um, forms of Eastern religion. Um, whereas, you know, like the Christianity has the Bible and maybe, you know, it's it's that's what's canonical. And then there's other people that are kind of, you know, like St. Augustine doesn't have like some kind of like denomination devoted to him, you know, like C.S. Lewis doesn't have a sect of Christians that believe he is the second coming of, of Jesus and stuff like that. You know, like it's with Buddhism and, and Hinduism, it seems like there's, it's kind of an endless amount of, um, of like what, what in Western religion, what in Christianity is called denominations. Yeah, and that, that goes back to our earlier discussion of, of Catholicism as a method of control. Because the, re the reason you have such a lack of diversity in North American religions is due to an active attempt to squash out smaller minority religions by the Catholic Church. And that's why, you know sects like mandaism and uh Manichaeanism are are so far from what any other christian and the, you know that whether they are christian sects is an incredibly 
violent topic. Not not lately, but historically. We 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 do have this this interculturalism contrasted against the, this very specific form of belief in the context of Jesuits. Not just Catholics, but a particularly uh, casuist, I think is the phrase, uh, form of Christianity. The, the, the entirely focused on reason, which really does epitomize the central theme of a lot of Pynchon's writings. What do do either of you have a strong interpretation of uh, Captain Zhang's transformation into a doppelganger? Yeah, I do. I do think it kind of it it is interesting that he turns into his enemy, um, the person that's pursuing him across North America, um, or at least the the northern part of North America. Um, it definitely kind of brings to mind. Uh, some other kind of pension, uh, like it, it for some reason it reminds me of Vineland and uh, the I think it's Vond or Bond, I think yeah, it's Vond who um is in some ways depicted as very different from people like Zoid. Um, but I do think that there's kind of you know, it's it's the the blurring of the line between good and evil. Um, you know, like the fact that people that, um, with some exceptions, I would say, but people that are, um, viewed as completely evil, um, probably aren't as completely evil as, as it's said, um, and people that are viewed as, as saintly and, and super, super good people are probably more evil than, than they or other people want to admit, if that makes sense, you know, like it it seems to kind of speak to the fact that the, the line between a good and a bad person is a lot more blurred than people want to think, um, which is kind of a very pension thing to believe. Um, you know, pension doesn't, pension doesn't, uh, pension doesn't seem to think that anyone or anything is completely correct. Um, I feel like pension is the type of person that, enjoys poking holes in things that even he believes and uh, the things that other people believe um, and kind of he's he's very I feel like rel he's I, I would use the word like relativistic to describe pension and subjective perhaps too yeah there I was just gonna say there are definitely shades of like Scarsdale vibe and Bond and um, mm -hmm. even Blissero in in this character of the wolf of Jesus. Yeah. I, I, I kind of took Zhang's uh, adoption of the wolf of Jesus's persona, well, not so much persona, but physical appearance, really, uh, is kind of a, one of the, you know, the to, to know your enemy, you have to become your enemy kind of thing. And it, it's kind of alluded to, I think, later on that he's kind of losing his mind. But I, you could, I, I think there's also an argument to be made that he's he's being very cunning in what he's doing and and getting inside the mindset of the person who is is tracking him and who he's need who he's trying to take down uh and by becoming that person he is able to understand what his you know what his moves might be so that he can anticipate whatever might come his way and and have a plan for it 
Yeah, I, I think it, it. At this point, I guess I'll bring up the the fact that this this is one of the funniest parts of the book to me. Is the fact not not the part of the book, I guess, but the fact that it's in the book, a scene where essentially a tertiary character comes up to the main characters of the book and says, "You are not the main characters of yeah. the story." It's deeply funny. Um, but that also does mean that we don't know everything that Zhang knows. You know, maybe this is a completely rational thing to do. Maybe this isn't crazy in the least. Maybe it is a cold, calculated form of, like, opposition research, like you're saying. And I do think it's interesting that, uh, as I, I think I pointed this out, I think it was me, maybe it was someone else, in a past episode of the podcast, is that you know, like the as you for the further you get into this book, the more the the central narrative gets kind of fractured, um, and the more that other voices start uh, taking over for Cherry Coke, um, which is that's also true for uh, Gravity Rainbow, especially, but a, a few other tension novels um, where you think it's going one way and you think it's going to be a, a lot more straightforward than it ends up being. I do also love that in in all of this kind of serious talk of of Zhang and his his attempts to bring down the wolf of Jesus and and everything he's doing he essentially turns the whole thing into like a a pay-per-view wrestling event. Um, yes. Where where he says That's by the exactly time he finally it. he finally arrives in this camp and announces Captain Zhang no one will be able to tell which is the real Sarpazo. We two will meet then in a struggle to the death, witnessed by all. The Axemen will place bets. There will be beer and touch pretzels, a bottomless urn of coffee. Depending on how long the contest takes, perhaps a free luncheon as well. Like, just undercuts the seriousness of everything that he's done up to this point and just turns into, hey, hell, there will be a deli tray and, and drinks and everything. It'll be a good time. Yeah, it feels like if in the middle of standing on standing in the ring like flashback to the 80s hulk hogan is standing there flexing <laughs> having won his last bout and he he just he's stopped halfway through to say and we have very comfortable seats <laughs> and pizza, or something like bring that pizza for us all beer only two dollars <laughs> The only other thing I, I wanted to get y'all's opinion on, I mean, we could talk about these chapters forever. Um, and I, I, I don't know. I may, about, I may be about to say something that's going to not make any sense to anyone listening to this, and I may be dating myself even more than I have in the past, and I'm not old enough to really have been around for this, but uh, the, the character Zuza, does that seem like a direct reference to Jaja Gabor to anyone else? I don't know about direct, but yeah, absolutely. That's where my mind went. The kind of, the, the way she's portrayed, the, the very un-English way of saying things she has and the kind of, um, you know, just movie star beautiful that she is, uh, I, that's just immediately where my mind went. And I, as soon as I thought that, I was like, Jesus, no one else is going to remember who Jaja Kabor was. Yeah, I wanted to get y'all's opinion on that side of things, where it is clear that, um, well, it's made clear to us that Eliza is, is at least believes herself to be happy in her first home. 
Um, and then we are kind of made to believe that while she's not anywhere near as happy with the situation as Ostra seems to have been, she she appears to be fairly okay with things in the in the in, in with the Viudas for for a moment at least. But um, she at, at at this moment. She or not at this moment, but she she has gone this whole journey with Zhang, and she, from her perspective, does seem to be interested in him. Not just afraid, not not just like afraid of him making an advance on her, but genuinely does seem interested in him. Does seem to care for him, and immediately, upon meeting the party, teams up with, with this Zha Zha Gabor type, and sets off for an adventure with some pretty pretty lesbian overtones mm -hmm. um, it, it's just an interesting decision there and you you have to you have to wonder what's going through Zheng's head this whole time because he's like he's trying to get a get a hold of her before she is made into a view that the Cristo um, but it, 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 it we're not sure why because he doesn't ever make an advance on her and if anything she it makes advances on him. I don't know, it's, it's all very strange to me. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. I don't really know particularly what was going on between them. Well, and then the, the last thing I have, like you said, we could talk about this forever. There are so many things we skipped over, like the whole wig thing. The skulls <laughs> in the wig room. Like, yeah. dear lord, that's so Jeez. full of meaning. Um... But, I mean, every page. Like, seriously, I thought about, you know, rewriting the summary today, and I realized that spending a sentence on every page would take... I mean, that, that would be brushing over everything, essentially. Mm -hmm. so I mean, this happened. would have to be a six-hour episode to really get into all of it. Yeah, yeah. And we, we will have... I mean, we'll revisit a lot of this, these things when we get to the end of the America section and at the end mm -hmm. of the book. Don't, don't worry, listeners. But uh, the last thing for now, I guess, that I had in mind was this strange moment where Zhang has pretty much lost it. And he says uh, to, to assuage people who are saying, hey, wait a second, you're telling us that there's this genocidal maniac priest en route here and you want to fight him? around all of us where we have our families we have our lives here what are what what is this about and he says you're safe as long as i have a cyst from a cobra's head and then yeah he doesn't say anything else and i don't believe it's brought up in the rest of the book so it's i mean it it reminds me of again you know against the day during the chums of chance sections the ways that Pinchin would refer to other volumes um, where it just seems like we are supposed to have read Captain Zhang earlier in the Ghastly Fop and understand the value of this Cobra cyst. But as it stands, it's just here. And he makes this big deal out of it, and all that we get is a punchline where Dixon says, I would like to purchase one of these apparently useless objects. Yeah. Yeah, I, I caught on to that too, and I, I went to the wiki to look for it, and there's two links about it, one of which is broken, and the other is, it it's 
to a page on Vasuki, who was the second king of Nagas in, the, in Hinduism, but there's really nothing on that page about the the cobra cyst thing. So I, I really I meant to go more into that and see what the significance of that was, but I just did not get around to it. I did just um, <clears throat> Google cobra cyst, which I'm now figuring out was in terms of uh, gore is maybe not the smartest thing to Google, but um, yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I guess that there's a type of, I think cyst can be described as be, looking like a cobra head. I think that's a type of cyst. Um, oh, interesting. So maybe there's something there with that. I don't, I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm kind of scared of poisonous snakes. I don't, I don't know a lot about them. Um, I don't, I, it does, it did kind of occur to me that, um, I don't know, the, the, the relation, like, you know, the fact that it's described as like a pearl or something, uh, you know, I don't, you don't necessarily link the word cis to something like a pearl. Um, I, I, I found that part really interesting, but I didn't necessarily understand it. I am now reading a wiki article, not a Wikipedia part article, a wiki article about radiology reading. Interesting. So thank you for that, Luke. <laughs> it doesn't seem terribly relevant. So if it if it means anything, the broken link that's on the Pension Wiki was trying to go to occultmansion.com. So it may have some occult tie to it. Yeah, the the pineal glands did come up in my Google search as well, which would would be related to the third eye yeah. concept and all that. Yeah. Brad, if you know anything, or listeners, if you know anything about that, I I, I think all of us would love to know yeah. what is going on with that. Because um, yeah, that one really grabbed my attention as well. Um. So before we get into the the end game of this, I did want to bring up that. Uh, for our our episode last week, we talked about I talked about uh, my some of my college's experiences college experiences as they relate to Nath's letter. I think in chapter forty six, um, hmm. I I don't. There's something about it when, that when I was listening to the episode, there's something about it that reminded me of Pynchon's, uh relationship friendship with Richard Farina. Um, mm-hmm. It did kind of strike me that some parts of that of that letter seem to be a bit random or kind of smashed together or written in a kind of maybe not a shorthand, but a, in a very overly familiar way. Um, but I did kind of wonder if perhaps Pynchon, you know, I've, if if one of my friends had died soon after college in a, in a tragic motorcycle accident, um, you know, let alone the possible conspiratorial aspects of his death but you know i would probably especially in, in that time period i would i would hold the letters that him and i had exchanged pretty close um mm-hmm. but it did kind of strike me as perhaps like maybe pension was quoting himself in his letters or quoting farina in his letters from that time I and mean, that's just it's it's something that we'll never know for sure um maybe perhaps we'll know through the pension dumping all of his writing documents on that library in california um, but I don't know. It just kind of struck me as like it was a fun, like kind of headcanon thing for me that that is uh, it's like kind of an oblique reference to him in Farinia. 
That's from last week, but it, I don't know. I hadn't thought about that, but that's uh, you got me thinking on that now. Yeah, when I when I read this book, I I really do see a lot of. Uh, I I I think it's hard for me to see this book as uh, as anything other than centered on friendship and particularly male friendship. Mm-hmm. And and it, it really, yeah, I read this before I knew anything about Pinchon. And when I learned that his best friend had died, you know, when they were like 26. Yeah, I mean, it, it all kind of made sense there. Yeah, now, see, now I'm curious if maybe that, the loss of that friend was the impetus to start a book like this. Because, you know, it, by, you know, by the end of it, that's where we end up, is with one friend mourning the loss of another. Yeah, that is true. Um, that's that's kind of, yeah, I didn't necessarily link it to the genesis of this book, but that's that would make sense. Well, should we lighten the mood with uh, some humor? Let's. Um, so, I mean, yeah, we started with, you know, the, the prank war between the two of them. And Mason's not so great attempt at doing pranks. Um, I did like just as a brief thing uh, the fact that uh, Mason has a service grade beaver hat that he wears. I just thought that was an amusing description for for that hat. Yeah. Um, if I have, so I found what I may be digging too much into but i what i think might be two more because this it would not be the first time uh monty python and the holy grail references or nods as they were uh the first being on page 494 when they're talking about the black dog um just the way it reads uh careful warns mr barnes you're not supposed to use any of its names really really the black dog can't say the black shh it is one of the things that are never said it totally reads like a knights of knee uh, moment where you're not supposed to say certain words. Um, Definitely. And then the other was where did it, what page was it on five? Oh, five oh seven. Um, the 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 line uh, Ah Mason he cried though Mason who was in fact not doing too much better lay snoring in a corner. She had it all beauty money um, whatever else there is. That brought to mind the uh, you know what's not to like about her she's beautiful she's rich she's got huge tracks of land so yeah yeah, yeah. those are my two little monty python moments yeah I had, a, I had a couple as well i mean i uh growing up me and my brother my little brother who's just a year younger uh both had coonskin caps that um i believe we got from when we were in texas and maybe at the alamo uh because mm-hmm. davy crockett used to wear those i want to say um and just the whole thing about you know him thinking that dixon's a werewolf or him thinking that it's like his actual hair um was really funny um i mean the ones that i had were like pretty obviously fake and um all of that um i'm sure that if they were real coonskin it would be a little bit different in terms of how they had been received um and i don't I don't necessarily know how funny it is. It just kind of reminded me of funny stuff. The part, I can't remember what character sleeps with their eyes open. I think it was Mason. Mason. Okay, yeah, because I, yeah, I had a, 
I have a family friend who, uh, family friends who have a son who's a little bit older than me. And I remember this was years ago, but I went over to their house with my family and then we got on the subject of him sleeping with his eyes open and they had like, like they showed me like 30, 40 pictures of him with his sleeping with his eyes open. And it's just like, I just, it just made me laugh. I don't, it, it like, if you've ever seen somebody sleep with their eyes open, which I've never seen with my own eyes, I've seen pictures of it. It's, it's, it's a really wild. Abs- it's absurd. Yeah. It's super absurd. It's really, it's really funny. Um, it's kind of scary in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, it is. yeah, it really is. I, I used to go hunting with my dad and one of his friends did that. And I didn't know what it was at the time. Cause I was like 10, maybe nine. I thought he died. Like it huh? just, it did not track in my mind that that was something that a person could physically do. Yeah. My, my sister growing up, I don't know if she still does it, but she, she used to sleep with her eyes open. And, uh, I will tell you, once you get used to it, it is an excellent way to way, way to set a prank for somebody else. Because it, <laughs> you can sure. really scare the crap out of somebody by by you know your your sister or whoever it is is falling asleep. You if they're a heavy sleeper, you can kind of pose them, put stuff on them, <laughs> really trick other people into thinking they're awake. Will, did you have any particular uh, funny scenes that you wanted to bring up? I did, and I just can't find it or remember it. So give me, give me a. <laughs> I'm gonna go through one more quick time. I will say I did also like the fact that Cherry Coat got dunked on again when they when they got brought up. Oh, that whole thing about like Mason insulting him and then saying that he's like respectable or whatever. Yeah, well, they asked somebody asked I don't remember who it was asked if there was a chaplain in the party, and the answer was reg- regrettably yes. I tried never to seek his counsel. Yeah, that was Eliza. Yeah, and then it shifts to Cherry Coke talking about that. So he's t- he's actively admitting to all of this people, all of these people disliking him. Yeah, that's that's definitely part of this is that Cherry Coke wants to be disliked by most people. It seems. Yeah, like he just revels in it. All right, I'm I'm, I'm giving up. Okay. G- give me one one second to find my second choice thing again. Oh, yes. Okay, finally. Sorry about that. Um, it's on page 530, something we haven't mentioned yet, is that, um, that there is a moment where where the Wolf of Jesus realizes that Zhang speaks Spanish, and so in some sense he's been a spy, which, you know, is obvious to us later on, but, you mm-hmm. know, this is news to him and us. And um, it's followed by he, he saying... The, the Spaniard is intending to, rather than just kill Zhang, perhaps keep him useful. You know, just see if he can be convinced to forget. And it's phrased, to any mind at all inquisitorial and impi- an appealing turn of fate. Yet the Spaniard is disappointed, soon bitterly so, at Zhang's willingness cheerfully to forget all he may have learned, to recite whatever catechism of the past the Spaniard prefers. And I just, I love that, because there is this horrible buildup in just the paragraph prior where you realize oh crap Zhang is in danger this character who we barely know mm-hmm. at that moment but you know you you know him well enough to be like oh crap this guy is a bad the wolf of Jesus you know, is a bad guy he's trying to kill Zhang Zhang must be a good guy and then no Zhang is just willing to roll over and do whatever the hell he wants <laughs> or at least pretends yeah. to 
Yeah, there's so much of this chap- these chapters that we could have just kept going over. I forgot. I had totally forgotten about that. There's, there is so much in these chapters. Yeah. Well, let's move on to, uh, to quotes and see if uh, Luke or I can steal Will's thunder this week. Because last week, I think the last two weeks we haven't been able to. So, Yeah, good luck. We'll see. <laughs> uh, Luke, you want to go first? Yeah, so my favorite quote is the beginning of chapter 55. Uh, Terrible feng shui here. Worst I ever saw. You two crazy. And then Dixon has Dixon talks and tries to uh, make Zhang look at the the Visto that's sweeping them away. But And then Zhang says it acts as a conduit for what we call Shaw, or as they say in Spanish, California, bad energy. Um, that's just as, as we've been over in this podcast, you know, Pynchon's obsession with the 60s, Pynchon's connection to the 60s. Um, mm-hmm. It's just a very... You know, Pitchin lived in California, I think, before marrying his wife and moving to New York, I think, in the early 80s. Uh, it's, it's at least theorized. Um, but yeah, that just struck me as a very... I love I love that quote. That, and I did actually look up the whole Spanish California thing. Um, that would be a bit of an anachronism for the time period of uh, them drawing the line, but not for... Uh, Cherry Coke telling the story because um, I think that the Spanish first established settlements or forts in California in like 1769 and 1770 um, and I believe we're still kind of near the middle of the decade of the six, the 1760s yeah in uh, in the drawing of the line um, it's also just kind of funny to me that a, a Chinese guy who's on the east side of North America would even know that Spanish California exists. Um, but I don't know. I just really like that quote. Yeah, no, that was, that's a good one. Uh, mine's on page 551. Um, almost towards the end of the chapter, of chapter 55. Um, and it says, They submit, Sousa replies, to the preemptive needs of the maneuver. A soldier's faith at last must rest in the impurity of his desires. What can a Hansel possibly wish for that Heinz in front of him and Dieter behind and a couple of Fritzes on either side have not already desired? Multiplied by all the ranks and files stretching away across the plain. The same blonde from down the street, the same pot of beer, the same sack of gold delivered by some elf for doing nothing. Who is unique? Who is not owned by someone? What do any of their desires matter if they can be of no use to the maneuver where all is timed from a single pulse, each understanding no more than he must? Um, I, I think it, again, kind of goes back to that gravity's rainbow era of his writing and that idea that, you know, especially in, in when you were looking at warfare and how, you know, all these, these people who are brought in as, as soldiers basically become, uh, I don't want to say dehumanized, but they're, uh, they're, they're basically just kind of, uh, made into the same person almost and and they kind of lose that identity that that defines them as a as an individual and and strips away their their uniqueness and just puts them you know another another person in line marching to the beat of the drum yeah i i myself i always find the the best characterization at least in pinchon you know it may may be due to the lack of characterization you know some may say it is in those tiny little those crevices right the implications mhm 
is a, is a great example. So, so part of me would like to cheat and basically say, like the first half of chapter fifty-three, um, but that's way too long. I can't even can't even convince myself that that's fair. Um, and a lot of the the a lot of the stuff that we we have intentionally not discussed, not. <laughs> not so much the other the other sections, although there are a few of those sections. But if you, the some of the stuff we've intentionally not discussed is some of the most beautiful writing in this book, and it has some incredibly powerful symbolism. And uh, I highly recommend everybody um, savor these passages if you just skimmed over them. But I'm gonna go with a, a section that we did not intentionally skip over. Right at the end of chapter 54, uh, Rebecca's ghost returns to Mason for just a, just a moment, mm. essentially. Rebecca, her eyelids never blinking, for, all, for where all is dust, dust shall be no more, confronts him upon surfaces not so much random as outlaw, uncontrolled by any apparent end or purpose in the penumbra of God's concern. That's if you don't mind comparing his regard with a solar eclipse. Moving water... Mason tries to go fishing whenever he can, for there is no telling what the next ripple may present him. The rock abysses and mountainsides leaves in the wind announcing a storm, shadows of wrought iron work upon a wall. The kissing crusts of new-baked loaves, on the Indian warrior paths to and from triumphs, captivities and death, in the lanes overgrown of abandoned villages at the turn of the day, in the rusted ending of the sky's light, in the full eye of the wind, she stands, waiting to speak to him. What more has she to say? He has long run out of replies. Then I am not she, but a representation. This thing, she will not style it death. I am detained here, in this thing, that my body all the while was capable of, and leading me to, and carried with it surely as the other thing, the thing our bodies could do together. She will not style it love. Has she forgotten words over there where tongues are stilled and no need for either exists? And I don't... I haven't fully processed this section. I do think there is a lot. There is a lot of uh, genuine meaning in it. Uh, not, not, you know... It's not the densest section of the book at all, but, you know, I think there is there is a lot of what... Pinchon believes about humanity in this. Um, but it is just beautiful. Mm -hmm. Just sonically and on the page. I think it's wonderful. Yeah, that is a absolutely beautiful one to that chapter. Well, what's, uh, what's our most Pinchon part? I think it's obviously chapters 53 through 55, but I don't know if y'all had any other parts. Mine what we've already discussed is Zhang slowly turning into, which I think I already probably said it was very Pynchon-esque, but mm -hmm. Zhang slowly turning into the Wolf of Jesus. Um, that's the kind of thing that um, only, only Pynchon or perhaps an author influenced by Pynchon or one of Pynchon's influences uh, would really, would really dare to do. Yeah, if I have to point at a particular thing, I think it's either just the choice of 
this section has two, which makes four or five references to werewolves, none of which are actual werewolves as we think of them today. Yeah. All of them are like either metaphorical werewolves or a, a, a pun, like a dog person. Or, you know, like Zhang, you know, he's just Lobo. You know, it's mm-hmm. a nickname. Uh, but within the within the the really mind-bending part, I guess. I, I think it is just the most pinch-on thing in the world to have a tertiary character come in and just tell the main characters that they are side characters. Yeah, I think that's that's, that's hilarious. Especially when, you know, to the, the, the side characters are, you know, eponymous to the title. And also, yeah. like, actual, like, historical figures... Whereas Zhang is entirely fictional, I hope. I dearly hope. All right, well, um, let's go on to our weekly email from Brett. We we technically got two because I I did email him in the middle of the week to ask about the cave. So um, that was our first one. But then he he did also send our usual uh, episode wrap up notes, uh, and he said, uh, "Hey all, this week's thoughts." Glad you mentioned Darby and Cope as historical members of the survey party. Often when Pinchon invokes a party member, there are historical records mentioning that person. The McLeans, for example, were a major surveying family. Moses was a steward of the party. Samuel, Alexander, and Archibald were involved in efforts to survey the 12-mile circle around Newcastle, Delaware. Interesting, Nath McLean appears a Pinchon invention. I find no mention of that name in the record. Nath is such a fascinating character, so I find his relationship to the history interesting. On coffee... It's associated with revolutionary sentiment. It's a global product, one requiring the input of enslaved labor, and it's shown as fueling the politics of the day. Iron Hill is real. It's near Newark, Delaware. Iron deposits there were mined throughout the 18th and 19th centuries, often by underclass workers, including freed slaves. The wedge is generally depicted as a magical space, unbounded and outside the Enlightenment order, because its geometry is so idiosyncratic, but it is only a temporary magic. The boundary dispute involving the wedge will be resolved in the 1920s, bringing the space into, quote, civilized maps. Will's excellent quote choice and the ensuing discussion touch on this wonderfully. I thought the discussion of Peter Resinger and Gnosticism was thoughtful and insightful. Excellent work there. Also loved the depths of Kate, depth, depth of Kate's engagement with the journal. It's so great to give space to that document, which is fascinating both on its face and as an inspiration for the novel. Another great episode is always a joy to listen in. Took me the weekend to get to this time, uh, so I apologize if I'm late for taping. Um, so yeah, I will say, you know, I, I did read these chapters along with uh, Mason's journal, and that definitely adds a, a very interesting um, element to the reading. So if you haven't done that, I would definitely suggest doing that. I'll drop the link in the show notes again uh, for anyone who's curious, because it's a really interesting read. Um, in, in news on our Instagram, I, I should have put this in the group chat, but, uh, a user named literary lumen did comment orale, uh, in Spanish, the Spanish word orale or the Spanish slang term on my post about us having an ep- uh, a new episode up, um, which I believe is the first non, non scammer comment that we've gotten. <laughs> so yeah, that's good for celebration. Open up the champagne. That's right. <laughs> Well, yeah, we appreciate the the comment. That's that's awesome. And um, yeah, thanks everyone for for listening. Um, 
We will be back next week to talk chapters 56 through 60. And uh, we look forward to having that discussion. So thanks again for listening. Check us out. Uh, All our social media links are in the show notes. And we'll see you all next week. Bye. See ya. Oh, Luke, I finished um, the first book in Illuminatus Trilogy, and I'm starting the Golden Apple now. Yeah, I uh, I finished the first one uh, last week, and then I haven't. I think I'm going to trade off that trilogy with the Valus trilogy with Philip K. Dick's Valus trilogy. Mm. Um, yeah, I did write like a really long, pretty long review on uh, on Goodreads for the first one. I did really enjoy it. Um, it definitely does remind me of Pension. Um, it kind of reads like Pension, but like. Uh, I mean, I really like that you compared it to Vonnegut, um, but it definitely reads like Pynchon, but like if Pynchon was like, like, you know, like, I don't, it's like Pynchon on steroids almost or something. Like if Pynchon was like, even like, you know, like Pynchon was like trying to, I don't like trying to parody himself or something. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. It's it. Yeah. It felt like it um, took the conspiratorial side of, of Pinchon and just really leaned into that. Yeah. And I do think Pinchon probably tries much harder to base his his stuff in reality, whereas I don't... I think, I mean, that's kind of the whole... Part of the whole point of that trilogy, or at least the first book, is uh, playing with, um, you know, what's real and what's not real, which definitely yeah. comes into play, especially, I think, in the final chapter with all the discussion of believing things you hear or not believing things you hear and all that stuff. So, yeah, it's definitely more surreal, um, than, than most of pinch on stuff. It's interesting. I think that it's written around the same time that gravity's rainbow was just because of some of the parallels to that. Cause yeah, this came out the year after two years after 75. Yeah. So, I thought that was interesting, but yeah, it's, uh, I'm, I'm liking it. It's, uh, I'm going to keep going through cause it's a library book for me. So I kind of have to get through it at a certain point. One thing I did find a bit problematic about the Illuminatus book is it's definitely, I mean, it's, it, I get kind of annoyed with people who, and I annoyed myself, uh, whenever I do this, but but like if that book came out today, like, you know, it'd have to, it's portrayal of women would be, would probably oh, yeah. be, would be sensationally uh, dragged through the mud. Um, I don't know. I did. I did write a little bit about that. In my Goodreads review, which um, I don't know. I mean, that, like thinking of the sixties and seventies, there's a lot of uh, of of that kind of of the attitude espoused in that book in in literature. Yeah, it's. And you know it's one of those things where I, I, I try to read it as a product of its time, but even sometimes it just gets to be too much, and it's just kind of cringy. And yeah, there's definitely a lot of that in there. I, I can't tell. I mean, it does. The whole thing is tongue in cheek, and at least attempts to be self aware. Um, and you know, we, I haven't finished the trilogy. You haven't finished the trilogy, but I do kind of. I don't necessarily get the impression that 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 um that's going to be at all justified or redeemed
It certainly doesn't seem that way. I kind of, it, it at this point, because I'm almost through the first book of the second book. Makes any okay. sense? Yeah. Um, it, it at this point would take a lot of heavy lifting to kind of undo a lot of that. So, I don't know. We'll see. Because, yeah, I mean, it's pretty, it's, it's, it's in a lot of ways pretty next level, even for its time. I mean, I was just thinking about, because um, Philip K. Dick does get some, some, uh, some mud slung, slung at him in terms of his portrayals of women, but it's, he's not, they're not just, you know, like in that book, they're just kind of merely sex objects. Um, they don't seem to serve much of a purpose, and none of the leaders are women and stuff. I actually I have read the Valis trilogy before, but I realize I've been realizing as I read it, as I've been reading it, that uh, I I didn't really retain much. I think that was kind of mm. I think partially because of how wild that those books are, especially Valis, the first one. I was kind of thinking I was smoking a fair amount of weed while I was reading it, so it doesn't really help with <laughs> you know memory issues. So yeah, yeah. I don't. I haven't read that particular trilogy of his. Yeah, I think it's kind of more of a loose trilogy. It is definitely, um, yeah, like the first book especially is is like about half of it, like barely. I mean, it like a lot of it's not really even like about. It, it's kind of it's pretty loosely, loosely a novel. It's in a lot of ways kind of a uh, like a philosophical kind of treatise, and it's also definitely a. It seems like he's like Philip K. Like it's all there's all this stuff with like Philip K. Dick and because um, his like the the main character of the book is named Horse Lover Fat and I think like that's like a um that's like a it's a different way of um it's like a if you translate like Philip and then Dick into like different languages that's like you come up with those words um huh. but yeah so it's like so it's you know like. Horse Silver Fat is like the he of the book and he's kind of like the POV character, but then Philip K. Dick like breaks in in his eye through a lot of it. And um so but he's kind of like both characters, but like the characters talk to each other. Um and it's definitely I don't know how much you know about the whole like him going crazy in this in the mid seventies. Yeah, um, I've read a little bit about it. Yeah, because it's definitely it's definitely the good this weird like um He's definitely kind of like investigating and like going over his own delusions and like it's it's this weird thing like he, you can tell that he like he wants he like wants to believe that his delusions are real but he also knows that objectively that's like the dumbest fucking thing to believe, you know? Mhm. Um so it's I mean it's 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 definitely a trip. Um I enjoy it. I I bought like a I have like a book that has all three of the trilogy in one, and I bought it for like pretty cheap, considering I think it it goes for like thirty or forty online. Um, and uh, yeah, I've been really enjoying it. Um, it's it's definitely like I said, it's kind of it's not there's not a lot of plot, but um, it, it it does and it does share some similarities with like a scanner darkly with like kind of investigating okay. the the mm-hmm. aftermath of heavy drug use and um like friends dying and stuff like that to go back to the to back to the illuminatus thing the illuminatus book is like super it's like one of the most like 70s books i've ever read it definitely yeah it definitely is 
it's like super of its time. I'm curious of if, because I know they wrote more books together. I think they did another trilogy, um, Robert Shea and, and Robert Wilson. But apparently they did a, a, I think it was a nine hour stage adaptation in London a long time ago. Yeah, I did see something about that. I thought that was interesting. I don't know that I could sit through a nine-hour performance of anything, but I'm sure it was interesting at the least. Yeah, I think I have a copy of the first book and the second trilogy, and I think it's just Wilson that did it, I want to say. Okay. Because um, I bought that at a bookstore, and then cause I thought it was like the actual first book of the actual trilogy, and then I guess it's like the sequel trilogy. I think there's, I think there's like two or three standalone um standalone uh novels as well and maybe like a nonfiction book that kind of gets into some of the supposed historical um basis for it it's also because it, it's kind of similar i feel like the a lot of the stuff about the assassin guy seems to me like it's kind of i don't really i've never played the assassin's creed games but i've like watched people play them and it seems kind of similar to that to me i don't know I've never, I'm familiar with the games. I've never, I haven't played them either, but yeah, I could see that connection. I think they're kind of similar and maybe may based on similar historical stuff. I don't really know. Uh, the only times I've ever played them, like I, I, whenever I was in grad school, I was at a party and someone had it on and I just flew around as an eagle for like 20 minutes. <laughs> that sounds like a good game. I'd, yeah. I'd get into that. And I, I did finish um, Ken Liu's Grace of Kings. It was okay. Um, I ended up, I went back and read some reviews of it from people on Storygraph. And a lot of people, I felt the same in that a lot of people were saying that it, it felt more, you could see his his career as a short story writer coming through a lot more because it felt like a, a lot of short stories kind of, in a like, not necessarily forcefully put together, but almost as if that's how he wrote it was just a series of short stories and then found connecting threads to tie them all together. Um, but apparently it, like his writing as far as like long form writing takes a huge leap in the next book in the series. So I'll stick with it and check out the next one, but it was, I mean, it was not bad. Um, but yeah, knowing that the writing gets better kind of gives me the, the drive to keep on with that series at some point. Yeah, my one of my main problems with fantasy is and like the the excerpt that I read from that series is that it's it's all I haven't I'm not sure if this is like a it's what I what I like it's all fantasy seems to almost always be written in what I call like fantasy voice where it's like super middle of the road descriptive prose, you know? Yeah, that's fair. Um and it seems like a, like a lot of like even in writing workshops I've been in um, I've had like fellow writers who are writing fantasy and it always seems like it's like, it's just always like the same. It seems like the, it's like the same narrator and like so many different books basically where they all like sound similar and use similar like language and vocabulary. And it's like, it's, you know, it's, it's trying to be like good prose, but it never like tries for like any like actual like pyrotechnics or anything like that impressive. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely a fair assessment. Um, I think there's definitely exceptions to that, but that's through and through. I, I, I've read a lot of fantasy. Um, that's definitely the case. I think it tends to be that because those books 
and I, I hate to be reductive, but those books tend to kind of exist more, I think, for um, pleasure reading rather than than like a real um, literary showcase. I think there are authors who have that ability um, and do showcase it well, but I think generally with, within that genre, I think it tends to take a, you know, prose and um, I, the, as you put it, the, the pyrotechnics tend to take a backseat to just creating, I, I think to world building more than anything. Um, so it, I think it has its own unique place in literature, but yeah, that, that tends to be, I, that's why I kind of tend to go back and forth between fantasy and, and other genres is I, if I read too much of fantasy, I tend to just get burned out because of that. Like you mentioned, the similar narration style, I tend to just kind of get too much of that. And so I, I like to balance that out with other kind of heavier stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. I, uh, I've been wanting to get into the Gorman grass trilogy. That's bad. yeah. I have that on my list. Um, our library has it. I think I'm going to jump onto that soonish. I don't know. That one's been on my list for a long time. Um, yeah. If you I, like, uh, oh, you go if on. You, if you like that kind of, uh, from what I've read, I read a little bit of of the first Gormenghast, the Titus Groans, I think is the first one. Yeah. Um, if you like that, I think you you would probably like the uh, that Mordu book that I read a while back. I just read the sequel Malarkoi uh, earlier this year, and it was really good. Um. But Mordu was was very similar in, in style, I thought, to to Gormenghast. Um it had a very uh like very gothic and, and kind of like a Neil Gaiman esque style of prose. Um and it was it played with a lot of interesting themes and, and styles within the book. And then the second book did even more of that, um, which was really kind of interesting. A lot of the second book kind of went back through the first book, but through a different viewpoint and kind of made you reassess what had happened in the first book. Um, so it's really interesting. And the, it's the third book I think is going to come out next year. Um, but you might, you might dig that one. Okay. Yeah. I'll... I have a trilogy at a half price books, but I, I've been last month. I went a bit crazy buying books and I had to control myself. <laughs> I've been there. All right, I am I'm back. Can y'all hear me? Yeah. Sorry about that. I uh It's all good. I spilled a protein shake not only on my copy of Mason and Dixon, but my oh, keyboard, shit. my oh, laptop, no. my microphone, and my my body. So I had to take a very quick shower there. Jeez. And uh hopefully my keyboard will work. But uh I'm back good to go. My <laughs> e-reader is not turning on. My copy of Mason and Dixon was rained on two days ago, and now it's Jeez. now there's some protein shake on it. So, uh, yeah, this is fun. I think I think Kate was completely right. This is a cursed episode. It's it's starting to feel that way. But um, back in rare to go.